Um, I think we should start over because <laughs> I fucked up the first yeah, line yeah. of the first podcast. <laughs> okay, here we go. Yeah. The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, a brother book summary by Andrew and J.D. Dennison, July 2019. Take it away. An NFL quarterback kneels down during the national anthem. Some people think it embodies American ideals. Others think it's anti-American. Some people think it's moral. Others think it's totally immoral. What the hell is going what on? What the hell is going on? The Righteous Mind is a book about moral psychology, one of the most important and pervasive things you've never thought about. Where does a sense of right and wrong come from? Even kids instinctively get the right and wrong. The stuff is deep inside of us. Height is going to argue it's in our DNA. And that one of his main arguments is that the same way our brains are designed to seek sex, sex, food, and friendship, our brains are pre-programmed to do morality and that this morality is what makes civilization possible. So this book answers two big questions. First, how do humans come together to form moral societies? And more relevant to today, how the hell have we come so far apart? Uh, we're living in two different Americas, two different moral worlds with two different history textbooks, two different climate science textbooks, two different readings of the Mueller report. Why is it so hard to get along? What is going on? To understand, we've got to step back from our political convictions and peek under the hood and into our moral psychology. So, quote, can't we all just get along? That was Rodney King after he was almost beaten to death by cops who were never convicted. But the part that's less often quoted that I like even more is, quote, I mean, we're all stuck here for a while. Let's try to work it out. Let's, Rodney. Let's. Let's, okay? And that's why Jay and I wanted to do this book. So a bunch of smart older people we've asked, they agree today is more politically divided than ever in recent memory. And we finally read something that makes sense of the political and religious divide by going straight to the heart of the matter, morality. Different humans have different morals, and when our morals come into conflict with someone across the aisle, we just can't understand how that person would be that way. How could they do that? How could they think that? How could they say that, right? That's how we feel. Now, understanding how our morals work is the key to understanding how someone else could think that way. And be before like that. we try to fix others, we should try to understand them. And that's what this book is about, and that's what Haidt helps with. And Jonathan Haidt himself has an incredible resume. He was a moral psychology professor at the University of Virginia for 14 years. Now he's at the NYU Stern School of Business. Um, if you watch him on YouTube, he's very steady. He's very concise and clear. A lot of awesome uh, quotes, and you know he really explains himself well. Um, he's got great gray hair. If you ever get a chance to see him in person. Um, he often gets introduced as the writer of The Coddling of the American Mind. That's his most recent book. Um, and it's a good book, but we think this is, might be a little exaggeration, but we do think it's kind of like introducing Charles Darwin as the writer of The Voyage of the Beagle. Right? <laughs> a little less important. Yeah, yeah exactly. Righteous Mind, it's like, Righteous Mind is a very foundational book. And, uh, uh, you we know, loved it. Yeah, it was very, very good. And we think it's uh, Jonathan Haidt's best. So, so if you don't understand The Righteous Mind, we think that you're operating at less than full understanding of how the brain works, how our society works, how politics works. Mm -hmm. And then we're taking kind of an American view on this if you haven't caught up. Less so than far. full understanding of how the human brain works. Yeah. If you don't understand, you need to understand mind. this book to get our political climate. So, yeah. Here we go. Brother Books takes on Jonathan Haidt's opus, the real opus, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion.
Part 1. Intuition's first, reasoning second. Chapter 1. Where does morality come from? We're going to kick it off with a quote from Immanuel Kant, a philosopher a long time ago. Quote, I'm fascinated by two things, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. Okay? Everybody has morals. Everyone knows morals. Everyone feels when things are fair or unfair. Everyone knows when someone is caring or hurting. Everyone has feelings of loyalty and knows who's in charge, right? Where do those feelings come from? When Haidt started, morality theory was very different. Morality was assumed to be reasoned out by everyone and their reasoning faculties, but we're going to test that theory by asking some questions. So, hey, Andrew, is it wrong if I buy a rotisserie chicken and have sex with it before I eat it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What if my dog is hit by a car, but it's still got some great thighs on it? Can I cut those up and eat it? Is Is that moral? But no. Is that in the moral domain. Ew. How do you decide if it's in the moral domain? It's not. <laughs> Are you logicking out those answers? Probably not. <laughs> He's no, nope. that's nasty, dude. That's no, nasty. I don't need logic to tell me that's nasty, okay? Yeah. So the answers don't the answers that we feel intuitively, they don't have much to do with logic. All those feelings about right and wrong, that's our moral sense. So if you logic out the chicken example, it's actually tough to find what's wrong there because no conscious being was harmed. The chicken was already dead. It is my chicken, my property. I own it. (laughs) I guess it was merely a social convention that I violated if I had sex with the chicken. Not a moral wrong. But here's the thing. When Haidt entered grad school, this is how psychologists thought about morality. They thought that we reasoned our way to morality from experiences with harm. Okay, that's the old way of thinking about morality. Height, with this book, is bringing a whole new way, right? Um, His basic argument to those old morality psychology people was this. Look, he's like, come on. Kids fight all the time for stupid reasons. They're not reasoning out. They're not logicking out why they're fighting. They have these feelings inside and they're fighting about them, right? And that's the end of it. So uh, you have to look past logic if you're going to understand morality, right? So JD and I have a very nice example from when we were kids. Very nice. Um, we had this little thing called Brother Rules. And, it, and one of the Brother Rules was that I am Yoshi in Mario Kart, okay? And JD knows. He's laughing because he knows, right? Yeah. that ex- Yoshi, My love of Yoshi extended to Mario Party, Mario Tennis, and any other Mario game you could think of, okay? There was no harm involved if JD chose Yoshi. But it sure as hell was in our moral domain as brothers that I'm Yoshi, right? It wasn't like we logicked out why. We just knew it. We felt it. We're kids. We're idiots, right? This high-minded reasoning that those old moral psychology professors had, that does not capture what was going on with our little rules that we made for each other, okay? Morality is a much more passionate Morality affair. Morality is passionate. So Passionate. Here's what Height did to dig deeper. He went to these, he asked these moral testing questions in rich and poor neighborhoods in Philadelphia and Sao Paulo and rural Brazil and lower class uh, Philadelphia neighborhoods. So a lot of different socioeconomic status, different culture, rural, urban. Quote, is it wrong to show up to your private school without wearing your uniform? Or is it wrong to cut up your country's flag and use it as a rag? In these stories, nobody's harmed. There's no conscious harm, suffering going on. But here's the unexpected finding, is that the upper-class yeah. Americans 
were closer in their answers to the upper-class Brazilians, and the working-class Philadelphians are closer in their answers to working-class Brazilians. The upper class made a much bigger distinction between mere social conventions and moral wrongs. Like, maybe it's not wrong to cut up your flag and use it as a rag, where the working-class people in both countries would have felt that that was in the moral domain. Also, chicken sex. <laughs> that's, that's immoral, okay? <laughs> Clearly wrong to the those working-class working people. people. They knew that those questions were wrong. They were in the moral domain. Why would it need reasoning or justification? And great quote from Height here, quote, I had flown 5,000 miles south to search for moral variation when in fact there was more to be found a few blocks west of campus. So that's one of the major points of our book here is that there's a lot of moral variation in our own country and we've got to understand that to bridge the gap between us. So where does morality come from? This is the question we asked at the beginning of the chapter. Is morality a nature thing? Is it a nurture thing? No, actually, morality is a combination of both nature and nurture. According to Haidt and many others, every single Homo sapiens is born with a, is born with a brain that already has a basic neuron connection structure pre-installed. Pre-installed. So our brains are structured in advance of our experience to lean in certain directions, okay? Then our environment shapes us and further codes our brains based on complicated biological brain logic. Complicated biological yeah. brain logic. In some... Our morality comes, it's a little bit innate, it's a little bit social learning, and it's a little bit self-constructed. One part nature, one part nurture, one part self. So major book conclusion alert here. Quote, we're born to be righteous, but we have to learn what people like us should be righteous about. So there's that righteous mind. Nurture. That's the righteous mind. This book about how we learn what people like us should be righteous about. Chapter two. The intuitive dog and its rational tail. Yo, AD, what drives our actions? Reason or emotion? I don't know, Jay. Well, don't ask me. Why don't you ask Plato, Human, Jefferson? <laughs> Yo, Plato, Human, Jefferson. Answers. Yeah. And all three have different answers, actually. They're sort of the proto answers for the three possibles. So Plato, when someone asked him this question, he, his answer would be, perfect rationality is the highest good. Everything is, mm, reason is the best, Plato. right? Hume was the opposite. He said, quote, reason is and ought to be a slave of the passions. Whoa. Jefferson had a more middle-of-the-road approach when he said reason and passion should balance each other out. Okay? And before we move on, like, take yourself. Take a second on that one. Plato, perfect rationality. Hume, perfect emotion, all emotion. Jefferson, a little bit of a balance. Debate between the two. Who's right? How do we even answer this question? Okay? Here's the thing. Back when these dudes were trying to answer this question... They didn't have, quote, the most powerful tool ever devised for understanding the design of living things. And what would that be, Jay? The theory of evolution by natural selection. <laughs> nice theory. See okay. Darwin, okay? <laughs> the first guy to argue that our evolution, I mean, besides Darwin, obviously, shaped not only our bodies, but our brains and our behavior was the original academic shouted down as a Nazi. That's kind of a weird way to introduce him, but he's one of our <laughs> favorite guys, E.O. Wilson. Best, yeah, we're definitely going to be yeah. bringing him up again. He's we, really, really we, good. Yep. We quote him to uh, a lot. So we'll, uh, EO wondered if universal human rights actually exist. Think about that. Human rights. We talk about it a lot. Do they exist? actually exist? Like mathematical truths? Or do people feel revulsion when reading accounts of torture and invent human rights to justify their feelings? Mm, interesting. Whoa. Whoa. Okay. Let's look at our cousins, the chimps. Maybe they have answers to these, right? Our boy Franz Duwall writer of chimpanzee politics right here, um, 
He doesn't argue that chimps have morality, but he argues that they have all the psychological building blocks that we use to construct our moral systems, like fear, anger, and reflection. Well, right. So that's interesting. But how do we settle this, you know, re- reason, logic, emotion debate? Right. How do we settle this for real, for real? Hey, Andrew, do you know any people with chunks of their brain missing? That, <laughs> that could be useful to study. <laughs> Let's study him, right? Phineas Gage. Dude, this guy has one freaking chunk, right? It's a railroad yeah, so spike. A railroad tow. spike blasted through his head, took out his prefrontal cortex, and he was studied the rest of his life, and we learned a lot from him. You read about him in every neuroscience book. So in one uh, super neuroscientist yep. all-star named Antonio Damasio studied people with damage to that specific part of the brain that Phineas Gage had. This is called the VMPFC. So you don't need to remember its name, but its function. We're going to talk a lot more about this thing. The, the PFC stands for prefrontal cortex. VM is just a certain part of the prefrontal cortex. It's the part that engages when we regulate our emotion. So we're digging into this deeper and behave, which we got over there. But to simplify it, your prefrontal cortex is the newest addition to our mammalian brain. That's why it's pre-front. It's all, it's right up here. Our foreheads are way bigger than our cousins. Brand spanking new. And it's sitting on top of our deeper, more emotional mammalian brain or limbic system. So the VMPFC that we're going to talk about a lot is the part of our PFC that has the most connections to the limbic part. So that's the part that kind of, you know, communicates the weird logic going on in our PFC and the emotions going on in our limbic or mammalian brain so people people with this brain section removed have no emotionality okay they can look at photos of happy children playing games or the dead bodies of those children and feel no difference (laughs) now when they get this piece of the brain removed they don't change as people they can still reason about right and wrong they can think you know they can answer do math problems right but in their personal lives they can't make any decisions at all None. none their lives fall apart they alienate their friends their spouses their co-workers it's because they don't have any emotion guiding their decisions. To operate in a complex social world, you need gut feelings to tell you what's important to think about and what's not. What do I do with my hands? Do I make eye contact? Do I congratulate? You know, it's natural. Apologize. You just know it. You don't yeah. need to like, oh, should I move my... You're right. Yeah. Uh, think about the trillions of micro decisions it takes to do any kind of small talk or any little action, right? Uh, without emotion to guide you... You need to use complex verbal reasoning to weigh the pros and cons That's of your each prefrontal decision. cortex. Yep. So that and that would slow you down. That's why yeah. some people are weird to talk to. <laughs> and the, the analogy height says is it would sort of if you didn't have this piece of the brain, it would sort of be like every time you had to make a decision, you'd be picking out the best washing machine out of a lineup of washing machines by reading the list of washing machine specs. You're going to suck at conversation. Yeah, okay. okay. You're yeah, going to sure. F it up, and <laughs> we're knocking one answer of the reason-emotion part out, too, because Plato F'd up. Plato okay? was wrong. Yeah, if for you, sure. If, what Antonio Damasio and his research is showing is that if you try to separate the rational brain from the emotional brain, quote-unquote, because you know, those are... Uh, it's uh, all one. All one. You're not going to be more rational. You're actually going to be less rational. Here's what Demosio found. Great quote. Gut feelings and bodily reactions are necessary to think rationally. And the job of the VMPFC is to integrate those gut feelings into conscious deliberations. Emotions are a kind of information processing. So don't really tell us emotion and cognition are different, okay? Rationality requires emotionality. Ding, ding, ding. Rationality requires emotionality. So it's seeming like Hume was a little more right, that reason is the slave of the passions. But, and here Height makes an interesting distinction that you can split cognition into intuition, which is really quick, 
and reasoning, which is a bit slower. So here's an, a simple yes or no question to make this clear. Is it okay, Andrew, for a consenting and birth control using brother and sister to have sex? Is that okay? <laughs> no, okay. you. No, it's not okay. Intuition says wrong, but why is it wrong? Yep. They used protection. So there's no possibility of logic, pregnancy. Logic, logic. We're just going to assume it made them closer and they never told anyone. Sex is great. They enjoyed it. it. Blah, blah, yeah. blah. Yeah, it was a woohoo. Yeah, right? So every idea that you have, and, and Height went through this with people who's asking them, and you know they'd come up with a reason why it's wrong and shoot it down. And come up with another reason why nope, it's shoot nope, it down. Nope, it was great. Okay? It was great. It was great. In the end, most people just had to throw up their hands and say, I don't know why, I just know it's, it's wrong. wrong. Okay? Right? When we hear a question like this, we make a moral judgment immediately and emotionally, or intuitively, you might say, right? But we hear that question, that's crazy, can a brother and sister have sex? No, right? And then after we hear a question and we have a moral or intuitive emotional answer, then we toss up reasons to defend that answer, okay? And we use our reasoning to defend it, to bolster it. Intuition is an unconscious and quick process, and reasoning is a conscious and slow process. And so here, Height introduces the big metaphor of this whole part of the book to bring the point home. The elephant and the rider, okay? So don't think elephant in the brain. Just think elephant is huge, okay? That's what he's relating to your intuition. It's massive. It's got a lot of inertia. It's going to go its own way, and you don't really have much control over where it goes. The rider is just sitting on top of it along for the ride, and he represents reasoning. That uh, the, the rider can talk, maybe shift the elephant a few degrees left or right, but mostly the rider's just helplessly going wherever the elephant or our unconscious processes are already taking us. <laughs> the elephant represents our deep emotional limbic brain, and it has a couple hundred more million years of evolution behind it. The rider grew up in only the last couple million years when our prefrontal cortexes exploded in size. Okay? When this evolution happened... We talked about that in Sapiens, by the way. Yep. When this evolution happened, when we grew these prefrontal cortexes, the brain did not, quote, rewire itself to hand over the reins to a new and inexperienced charioteer. No way. The rider evolved to serve the elephant our logic evolved to serve our emotion okay our unconscious processes yes okay not the other way around we think reason is so fundamental to our nature but it's just a bonus feature riding on top of all the normal mammalian emotional stuff we've got going on okay so back to the rotisserie fleshlight oh my gosh <laughs> our brain instinctively says hell no when you Can't think about that. having sex with that dead chicken okay yeah. our emotional processing it kicks in way before. way before our higher cognitive processes that come online a bit slower yeah, for sure after that initial hell no our reasoning kind of you know tries tries to throw up reasons why it's bad it has trouble because i mean honestly it's kind of a weird situation this is the process okay you stimulus emotional response logical reasoning and that's Boom. how our brains work. Stimulus, emotional response, logical reasoning. That's what the rider is for. Here's Toss a good up quote. reasons to defend why the elephant's running around where it's running. Okay, quote, reasoning is more like a politician searching for votes than a scientist searching for truth. Whoa. Okay, same thing said differently by Drew Western, another psychology professor here. Quote, people twirl the cognitive kaleidoscope to get the results that they want. Logic evolved to serve our emotions. And once you grasp this concept, it leads to some interesting conclusions on how to bring us together. Okay? If people don't search for truth, how could you change their mind? You've got to speak 
to their unconscious processes. They're elephants, okay? Calling somebody a snowflake or a redneck doesn't make them want to listen to you. It makes them <laughs> hate obvious, you, yeah, okay? Yeah, exactly. So their elephant immediately turns away, and then you can never speak to their conscious logical processes because they're riders off, off you know, with Riding the elephant. Riding on that emotional yeah, elephant that you're saying, turned away. Hey, fuck you, okay? Sure, you're goading them into coming up with more reasons to hate you, right? Yeah. And if you're on social media and you call someone out for being a snowflake or a redneck, you know what'll happen. They're going to shift into combat mode, screenshot it to show their tribe that they're a valuable member of their team. Look what I did back to him. I called yeah. her something else, right? <laughs> you know, it's just like that's... it's. It's this battle. We, to, to come together, we have to learn to talk to each other's elephants. Chapter three, elephants rule. Here's some practical results of the theory that emotions run our day-to-day ops. Day-to-day brain ops. Andrew, okay. you know how when mom would be like, didn't I ask you to unload the dishwasher before I left? And before I can even think, I'm like, no, you told Andrew. Well, Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> I've heard that before. Yeah, so she probably asked me, but for a minute, I actually believed she asked you because it feels good to be right in this situation. No, it wasn't good to my say problem. That it wasn't your problem. fault, yeah. right? Your, your elephant you, likes you that answer me, a lot yeah, better. You like that answer a lot more, mm-hmm. so you come up with it, and sometimes you even believe it. Okay, here's the new terminology about that. There's a new psychological terminology we're introduced. Motivated reasoning. Yes. You have a conclusion that you want to reach. I want. I want you to have been responsible for unloading the dishwasher, and I reason my way to it. It's pretty easy to imagine that she asked you. Okay. Every single one of us has done, is doing, and will continue to do that. Motivated okay? reasoning. It's just part of That's being how it all an works. Animal. Our brain, brain evolved <laughs> to evaluate everything all the time, <laughs> reacting intuitively and moving either towards or away from stuff. This is all happening unconsciously. Within a few seconds of meeting someone, our elephant either leans towards or away, and our rider responds to the lean by searching for reasons why that's the case. He's creepy. She's hot. I like that person. I don't know about that, right? How deep does this go? In an experiment where you flash pairs of words on a screen, it takes conservative brains fractions of a second longer to register the pairing of the word Clinton with the word sunshine because they don't associate the two. Whoa. Okay? Yeah, whoa. Replace Clinton with Trump or Bush, and you get the same effect with liberal people, okay? Our unconscious elephant immediately tags things and then takes us off in that direction. We are not very reasonable. Yeah, I hate Clinton, so I don't associate Clinton and Sunshine or Bush and Sunshine. It's crazy. Yes. Quote, moral judgment is not a purely cerebral affair in which we weigh concerns about harm, rights, and justice. It's a kind of rapid, automatic process more akin to judgments animals make as they move through the world, feeling themselves drawn toward or away from various things, like worms. So remember (laughs) the question from the beginning of the chapter, what runs the show? Reason or emotion? Height's answer updates Hume's answer a little bit. Maybe reason isn't a slave. It's more like the lawyer of the passions. It can argue for or against certain things, but ultimately the client or the elephant makes the final decision. Okay? And I just want to pause for a second because, like, that was big. This is huge. The answer is in. People have been debating this since Plato. Now we know this is it. Your reasoning is only there to serve your gut feelings. When you really think about this, you can see it everywhere, and it opens a new door of self-awareness. Major door. Yeah. Chapter four. Vote for me. Here's why. Hey, Jay. Is it better to be moral or just seem moral, okay? I'm asking for a friend named Plato. Well, 
we would all like to believe it's better to be moral than seem moral, but we've been saying that our reason evolved to serve our emotions. And this chapter explains why. So here's a dude named Tetlock with some research. He, he gave people some tough policy questions to decide on. So policy A or B, a lot of pros and cons on each side. And if you tell half the people that you're going to have to explain their reasoning for whichever policy they chose, but the other half of the people won't have to explain their reasoning. That's the difference between the, the two groups. So the people that don't need to explain themselves just go, eh, policy B feels better, so I'm just going with that. That's it. But if, you ha- if you're in the other group and you have to justify your judgment to other people who are going to pay attention and who are educated on the subject, your reasoning gets a lot tighter. That's the only way to ensure really tight reasoning. So it sounds intuitively obvious, but think about its implications for a fire quote from Tetlock. Here we go. Quote, a central function of thought is making sure that one acts in ways that can be justified to others, end quote. That is crazy. Yeah. Repeat, a central function of our thinking is to make sure that we're acting in a way that we can justify ourselves to other people, get us to agree with what we're doing. That's crazy. That's yeah. why we think, okay? <laughs> the only way you can get a homo sapien to reason out an answer to a tough question is by making them try and convince other smart people. It's the only way to get good thinking, okay? On our own, we just feel something and go with it. That's really crazy when you really, I mean, you all kind of know that, but when you really put it down in writing and say it like that, it's like, wow, right? So if you see hundreds of insects cooperating, you know they all share the same DNA. Unrelated ants always try to kill each other. Only humans are able to cooperate in large numbers with non-related people. As a species, we're planet Earth's gold medalist in the cooperation beyond kinship Olympics. Okay, we, we invented that. that we race did. And we, we dominated for yeah. it, right? Um, and that we talked about that in Sapiens. That's the human being secret sauce, right? How the secret is in that we care about our reputations. We create systems of accountability to track everyone's reputation, and that reputation is super important to us. Okay, if your name is on the line all the time. You'll do the right thing for your group because everyone will remember if you That's don't. That's the key. Uh, you got to remember. Reputation's got to be on the line. It's got to be you for know, cooperation up or work. down. And right. people got to like you or not like you. The scoreboard of evolution isn't what's true, but what's best for the tribe. How do you check best for the tribe? Check everyone's emotions. So, because the group's got to stick together. So, Height extends this even further, saying, quote, The most important principle for designing an ethical society is to make sure that everyone's reputation is on the line all the time, so that bad behavior will always bring bad consequences. Okay, cough, cough, communism, okay? You don't have a reputation to worry about. And we said we'd bring back more E.O. Wilson quotes. So, here's what he said about communism. Great idea, wrong species. He studied ants, okay? <laughs> Be ants better for are, them. Yeah. Are, are, are communists, but they can do it because they're ants, okay? Not, not for us. So For sure. The extended metaphor of this chapter is that all this group accountability, evolutionary influence that has uh, been enacted on our brains has turned homo sapiens into intuitive group politicians, okay? So we're, we're going to uncover the ways he's going to relate us to politicians. So first... For the past hundred years, self-esteem has been a really big idea in psychology. So we learn about it in school, taught in college, blah, blah, blah. But when you look at it from a more evolutionary perspective, over millions and millions of generations, we failed to pass on our genes, not if we didn't feel good about ourselves, 
but if we were excluded or included into the group, that had a much bigger impact on on how uh, uh, evolutionarily successful we were. Sure. So self-esteem doesn't explain what we've got. We've got group esteem. Group esteem. Feeling good about ourselves only translates into raising our offspring into uh, offspringing age. <laughs> if our group feels good about us, got it includes us in the teamwork and the sharing and everything. The feeling yeah. of our group is super, super, super important, evolutionarily speaking, yeah. right? Think about how many millions and millions of generations of our ancestors were selected for how good they could form groups, how good they could be a part of the team, okay? Instead of needing to feel good about ourselves, we need other people to feel good about us. Other people to feel good. Forget self-esteem, we got group esteem. What we think of as self-esteem may more be like a sociometer assessing our value as a coalition member, okay? If you disagree with what we're saying about group esteem, check this out. There was a study that this is a great study, by the way. It's a little like maniacal in a way, but it's so funny. There's a study where people talked about their lives over a computer link to a person in a different room. So okay? I'm going to listen to Andrew tell his story about his life. Tell him the story. I'm going to put numbers up there of how interested I am. Oh, you went to Columbia whitewater kayaking. Okay. That's a little more interesting. Oh, you did this. Right. That's boring. But, it, but the study was that I'm in a room by myself and there's a number on a screen and the person said that the number on the screen was another person listening to your story, right? That person was not a person. Random numbers were popping up on the screen. It had nothing to do with the way your story was going. Which is really rough but, on the scientist part. But here, here's the thing, is that the people who went in saying, oh, I don't care what other people think of me, you know, even if they have a low opinion of my life story, I still feel good about my life story. If you got low numbers flashed up on their screen, you can't lie. We got uh, sweat sensors on you. Heartbeat sensors. We know. Your heartbeat's rising. You're sweating. You're feeling shitty about yourself. Just imagine if you're telling your life story and there's a two on the screen. Okay? You're not going to feel good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So even people who don't think, oh, no, you know, yeah. Okay. Come on. Yeah. So that's how... We all, the study concludes that we all care about what other people think. What self-esteem boils down mm. to is that we are unconsciously asking people, how am I doing in every encounter to all the people around us, okay? We're not generating this esteem from ourselves. We're gathering it from the people around us. That is the way, number one, we're like a politician. So way number two, take it away. Second way, we're like politicians. Okay, we, we covered the point that reason is a lawyer to the passions. And here's a study that compares this effect in different levels of education. Bring a bunch of people into a lab, hit them with tough issue questions, and have them write down their initial judgments. And then all the pros and cons they could think of on either side That's the that key. were relevant to either reaching that final answer, right? Relevant. Take both sides. Obviously, we all suck at coming up with arguments that's against our initial judgment. People came up with way more reasons for supporting their own initial judgment. That's not interesting. We know that. That, But this is what's interesting. When you compare people that took this study of varying education levels, like high school dropouts to PhDs, the only difference between less and more educated people was the number of confirmatory arguments. What this tells us is that educated people are not better at overcoming their confirmation bias and generating arguments for the, the other, other side. side. They're only better at generating more arguments for their side. So this effect of motivated reasoning is, is true at all levels of education. Just the more PhD you are, the more reasons you can come up for your yeah, emotions, for right? your own yeah. thing. Yeah, not against your own thing. So that's Researchers summed about. it up by saying this, quote, people invest their IQ in buttressing their own case rather than in exploring the entire issue more fully and even-handedly. Yeah. Welcome to human nature. That's a great quote right there. Really and that, is. that explains a lot. So one side looks more attractive, 
The elephant leans that way, and then the rider finds evidence to support its path. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> forgetting all about the other path, okay? So that's way number two that Homo sapiens is kind of like a politician. We justify, justify, justify. Now we've covered reason is the lord of the passions, and reputation is more important than truth. Combining these two insights together leads to some new interesting conclusions. Ever wonder why a single issue like the death penalty or climate change predicts basically 99% of your political opinions? We're more concerned with feelings of our group than what's actually accurate. Our elephants are tuned into our teams, ensuring our reputation stay intact. Quote from political scientist Don Kinder, quote, and a matter of public opinion, citizens seem to be asking themselves not what's in it for me, but rather what's in it for my group. So here's a great way to frame it. Well, first of all, that was a great quote. Yeah. And that's what's in it for my group. So we got to frame that for the way that all people think about this stuff. So if you want to believe something, you ask yourself, can I believe this? Yeah, sure. I can. I, I, can. I want to. Yeah. I, I want can. to. I, I can, can believe that. But if it's something you don't want to believe, you're going to ask yourself, must. I believe this. If I love Trump, can I believe that Trump didn't collude? Yeah, I can believe it. Uh, but if I don't love Trump, must I believe that he didn't collude? No. 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 Because he was he talking to Russians. Colluded. I okay. hate him. Yeah, yeah, he colluded for sure. You can, that's how we get on both sides of these arguments, okay? Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. So if you're pro-Trump, no. If you ask a bunch of people to read and look for flaws in a study showing a link between coffee drinking and breast cancer. Okay, women, coffee, breast cancer. Who do you think is going to be the ones at p- picking out the flaws in that study? The, the wizards at picking out the flaws. Who's going to do it the best? Chicks who love coffee. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> definitely, right? That's it's, the most relevant to their situation. It's obvious, but when you think about it, you see implications for this everywhere. Can I believe this? Well, if I don't like coffee, then yeah, I can yeah, believe that. I don't, I don't care. If I like coffee, must I believe it? No way. No that true study can't be true. Okay. So it, your beliefs depends on your team affiliations, not on the truth. Remember that. Mm. Self-interest is not a good predictor of votes. Okay. When voting, we don't ask ourselves what's in it for me. Deep down, we're asking ourselves what's in it for my group. Our political opinions are more like social badges showing our group membership. That's a great way to think about mm-hmm. this. Social badges. To me. So yeah. that kind of explains our nutso polarization. Okay, it feels good to be a part of a group. It feels good to be partisan. Here's a crazy thing: when Fox publishes a pro-Trump story, pro-Trumpers get hits of dopamine. Woo! Woo! It feels good, and then <laughs> CNN comes back with an anti-Trump story, and anti-Trumpers yeah. get their hits. Woo! Woo! Yeah, okay. So, fuck that guy. Okay. <laughs> Our partisanship is being reinforced, and it feels good the it whole does. time. Yeah. Here's a mind-blowing quote: "Like rats that cannot stop pressing a button, partisans may simply be unable to stop believing weird things." The partisan brain has been reinforced so many times for performing mental contortions that free it from unwanted beliefs. Extreme partisanship may be literally addictive. Whoa. Okay. Extreme partisanship may literally be addictive. And doesn't that kind of explain the current divide? It feels good when people add more justifications to our side or when people take away justifications from the other side. The truth has very little to do with any of this. Remember, it's more important to look right than to be right. Reputation is more important than truth, at least when it comes to human cooperation, i.e. politics. Damn. Damn. Okay. So given the state of affairs, Height makes the bold claim, very bold, quote, anyone who values truth 
should stop worshiping reason. Quote, reasoning evolved not to help us find truth, but to help us engage in arguments, persuasion, and manipulation in the context of discussions with other people. Humans reason to persuade and manipulate other humans, not find the truth. Full stop. That's part one. Intuition's first, reasoning second. We're on to part two now. There's more to morality than harm and fairness, and this is when it really starts getting good and mind-blowing. Chapter five, beyond weird morality. So let's go back to the chicken sex, okay? <laughs> we need to flesh that idea out a little bit more. <laughs> and the sex, sibling sex okay. too, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, these cringy questions were specifically designed to create moral quandaries. Nobody is getting hurt, but it just feels wrong. Height's results were quite interesting. Out of all the groups he questioned, only one group said that those cringy things were okay. What group is that, Jay? <laughs> American college students. Oh, man. <laughs> Probably okay. who's listening to this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. 73% of American college students said it was okay to bone the rotisserie chicken. And when he asked them why it's okay, their reasoning got right to work justifying their intuition. It's his chicken. He's eating it. No one's getting hurt. <laughs> It's perverted, but if he did it in private, it's his right to do whatever he wants. His right, okay? Yeah, what is that? When Height asked these questions to working class people, they'd be like, what? <laughs> you mean yeah. I have to explain to you that it's wrong to have sex with a rotisserie chicken? Okay? <laughs> and he makes a great point. They're right. Height and his college students, and you probably listening right now, really are weird. weird. And that's weird with all caps. But it's a podcast, so, so we just say it weird, okay? It's an acronym. Get ready. Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. One more time. Weird. Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Weird people, weird morals. Us weird people have grown up in a weird moral environment, very different from what would have been the case in most of history. Okay, so these weird people, I mean, if you grew up, J.D. and I grew up in suburban America, like, we're weird. We, we went to college. Western yeah. educated, yeah, that's definitely yeah. us, right? Um, we easily get enough calories, and we don't need family protection from lions or other groups of humans, which gives us a lot of time to focus on us, me, I, my wants, my needs, I, 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 right? <laughs> weird people have been raised in a culture that heavily emphasizes individual autonomy. Freedom to supersize our drinks, the freedom to sit in the front of the TV 15 hours a day. The freedom to be Yoshi in whatever Mario That's game you right. want. Yeah. Yeah, fuck you, okay? <laughs> so here's an example. If you ask Westerners to complete a sentence like, I am, they're going to say things like, I am outgoing, or a hard worker, or tired, or stuff that describes themselves. Or individual. Yeah. But more sociocentric East Asian cultures more group-centric, they're going to say, I am a son or mother or Honda employee or something. The rest of the world is non-weird in that they have a more sociocentric or group-centric morality, meaning they place the needs of their groups and institutions first, ahead of their own individual needs. They don't care whose chicken it is. They know that the relationship between a human and sex and a chicken doesn't go... That's okay. not good. Yeah, yeah that doesn't that matter. That doesn't happen. You don't need logic to... Remember when yeah. we said we're born to be righteous, but we learn what people like us should be righteous about? So those are the difference between the, us weird people who learn a more uh, individualistic morality and more sociocentric Asians, Africans, uh, just lots of other countries uh, that have a more sociocentric morality. And this is the big one here. And this is the harm principle. Okay, this is what weird morality is sort of based on. What is the harm principle, yeah. Andrew? 
The harm principle is this. Harm is bad. Okay? <laughs> okay that's a good start. Okay? <laughs> Philosopher John Stuart Mill enunciated this best. Quote, The only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others. End quote. But you, when you look at the rest of the world, their morals pay attention to a lot of things besides just harm. Okay? What makes us weird is that we're the only group that ignores our feelings of disgust and says, well, if no one was harmed when he used the flag as a rag, no one was harmed when he had sex with the chicken, then it wasn't necessarily wrong. Nobody else is going to bother looking past their disgust and rationalize their way to an answer where it's not wrong. They felt disgust. That's the answer. That's wrong. That is in the moral domain, and you shouldn't do that. This is where he learned this. So he was in India, and... In India, they give moral significance to a lot more things than we do in our country. What food you cook, what body parts you got to clean, when, and, and all these crazy things. So if you're a part of that culture, you feel it if somebody doesn't follow those rules. But those rules have nothing to do with harm and fairness. It doesn't hurt anybody if you cook after you <laughs> menstruate, okay? And up till now, the theory of morality was pretty simple. And the Western theory was, quote, don't hurt others, play fair. But height is bringing us deeper into the field of moral psychology, showing us that there's more to morality than harm and fairness. That's the whole point of this chapter, this, this, the part of this book. What's beyond harm and fairness? Well, what's beyond is hidden in the bunch of cultural rules that all of our groups have to maintain cohesion. Once again, it's all because we evolved to be in groups that we evolved these moral intuitions right? intuitions or what he's going to call them moral foundations and brrr, major academic theory alert moral that, foundations theory that's okay? his big that's his big uh that's, point, that's what point he's of the book. advancing yeah. in this book moral foundations theory lots of cultures have made rules about the same stuff cooking eating clothing honor all sorts of stuff quote we created the moral foundations theory by identifying the adaptive challenges of social life that come up frequently in evolutionary psychology, and we connected those to virtues that are found in most cultures. So here, here's what he did. He, he looked at what challenges groups of people would face coming together. Caveman groups. Work, yeah, working yeah. together, you know, to solve problems, blah, blah, blah. And then he charted each one of those challenges to a virtue that are found in most, if to all, human cultures. That's a pretty crazy thing to do. Pretty mm -hmm. awesome. Okay. And over millions of years, our brain evolved ways to feel solutions to these problems and keep our groups cooperating. So you don't have to teach each new generation. You just you feel, feel it. it. You come, it comes built in. Okay. Over millions of years, our brains evolved these, the, the way to feel the solutions to these problems and get our groups cooperating. Okay. These feelings are what he, he kind of calls cognitive modules which is a fancy way of saying it's built into the structure of our brain or organized in advance of experience and so here are the five uh problems and uh, the five virtues that these problems uh, help the the five uh <laughs> the five different virtues that you can find in any culture Yes. So these feelings are kind of like cognitive modules, which is a fancy way of saying they're built into the structure of our brain, organized in advance of experience. And Height mapped these problems to five different virtues that you can find in any culture. And the metaphor of this book is that these virtues, these preset cognitive modules are sort of like taste buds 
And that's the moral foundations theory is that we have these moral taste buds in our brain. Five of them, just like our normal taste buds. So chapter six, taste buds of the righteous mind. Okay, here are the five moral modules that he came up with with a, and a little about how each of these covers a different aspect of life. Ready for the five? Care, fairness, loyalty, authority, sanctity. Each one of these foundations is almost like a cognitive module that helped us overcome an evolutionary challenge. They helped us form tribes that have lasted thousands and millions of years. And today, they get co-opted in weird ways. So we're going we're gonna to discuss that, you know, here's the problem that the care module helped us solve. It's got to protect your friends and family, okay? You got little kids running around. They're doing stupid stuff. Evolutionary, it, caveman. It yeah, yeah, for feels sure. good when you pull your kid away for a, from a snake or help him tie his shoe, okay? That feels good. And now it's gotten co-opted in our modern society by feeling good when we see those videos of paralyzed dogs running around in those cute wheelchair things, okay? That, <laughs> it feels good to us. That's why those videos go viral. So the same brain circuits responsible for keeping our children safe are also uncomfortable watching Sid from Toy Story blow up all those toys, okay? We just don't like it. We care for that stuff. We all have the careness moral module pre-structured in our brain. We're ready to taste that taste bud. Caring. That's one yeah. of the five. And by the way, shout out to mom. That's her favorite moral module. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, mom. Uh, the second one is the Fairness Foundation. And the Fairness Foundation creates reciprocity in our groups. If I caught a rabbit and gave JD some today... JD, better give me some of the fish he catches tomorrow, or else I'm not going to want to cooperate with him again, right? Someone who didn't play this fairness back and forth game wouldn't survive and reproduce. Today, now we feel cheated if our coke gets caught in the vending machine, or when 1% of the population owns over half of the world's wealth. These things taste bad the same way that guy not sharing his catch with us tasted bad a million years ago. So right, that's the fairness foundation. Yeah, now, pre-programmed number three, loyalty. This module helps us form cohesive coalitions to help get shit done. You better take one for the team, okay? Our mm -hmm. tribe's gonna kick their tribe's it's ass. It's about the team. But the if team you don't team. show up for the fight, we're gonna kick your ass, okay? Because you're disloyal. Mm -hmm. And today, we feel pride and spell and yell special chance when our sports ball team wins, <laughs> or some of us are pissed at the athletes if they don't kneel, or if they do kneel during our country's special chance. You can't do that. Stop being loyal or disloyal to the group, okay? We all have a deep sense of loyalty to our closest friends, our family, and our coworkers, and it feels good. That's the loyalty foundation. Loyalty foundation. The next one, the authority foundation. The authority module forms hierarchies that allow the group to make decisions and act on them more effectively. Okay, there's hierarchy. It's pre-programmed in our brain to form this authority. Everyone gather up. We're going to go over there. We're going to control the edge of our territory and make sure those assholes over there don't cross it. And little Junior, you're going to stay here with your mom, okay? That's an example of authority. Like, I'm in charge. We're doing what I say. Uh, a really interesting comment from Franz Wall, the chimpanzee politics writer. Um, he said when kids show up to his zoo to look at the chimpanzees, he'll ask them to point out the alpha chimp. And they've never been to the zoo before. They all can point to it right away. They Boom. know exactly they know. who's in charge. They know. How it's, do you know? You just built know. In. It's built in. It's built in. Today, we respect authority in a lot of different positions. City council, mayor, governor, CEO, presidents, etc. Right? Lots of languages literally have authority coded into the language. Spanish has two versus usted. Um, we respect your elders. Hierarchy is just pre-programmed in our brains, and that's one of the moral modules. Okay, last one. Sanctity. 
So this module helps us avoid contaminants like rotten corpses and diseased people. So that disgust that you feel when you, when you see that, that disgust keeps us safe from those pathogens. But here's the thing. Tribes that adopted that moral flavor of sanctity better adapted to, to form really tight groups because the opposite of that disgust is kind of like a, a, a sanct feeling. You, have, you, you feel meaning. Elevated. High, elevated. Yeah, you exactly. feel like that's what religion. So if your group got danced around the fire and had really significant dance parties that made you all feel like you're, one, you're part of the team, your, your group's going to stick together better. Okay, We're going to cover that when we get to communes later. But that's, that's the sanctity module. It's the opposite of disgust, and it, what makes you feel holy. Okay, this is, Today, it's, it comes across as all this, my body is a temple, or wipe with your left, eat with your right. Okay? <laughs> and today, we also feel disgusted by communism or capitalist factory farming. Okay? And we feel holy when we sing songs in church. Um, that feeling yeah. of moral elevation is the sanctity module. We all have it, pre-programmed and, in our brains. And as we covered in Sapiens, us humans took over the world because we are the dopest group-forming animals because of these five moral virtues or foundations that we all come with built in. It feels good to help people. It feels good when resources are distributed fairly. It feels good to be loyal to the group. It feels good to have a hierarchy. It feels good to create deeper meaning in your life. Evolution pre-programmed these feelings, these intuitions, to solve the problems of forming groups. If you have to convince a group that it needs a leader, that's not going to be a good group. If you have to explain to your kid why they shouldn't go eat that rotten corpse, <laughs> it's probably not going to work. They need to have a feeling that they shouldn't do that, never, right? Never even thought about doing we've that. We've <laughs> faced these evolutionary challenges millions of times over millions of years, and we've developed these pre-built, pre-built moral modules, deep intuitions, to help us sort these problems out. Interesting stuff. Moral foundations theory. Thank you, Hyde. Chapter seven, the moral foundations of politics. So now we're going to come Heating into the up, modern baby. world. Heating okay? up. Yeah. We say these modules are built in, but what does that really mean? Quote, nature provides a first draft, which experience then revises. Built in doesn't mean unmalleable. It means organized in advance of experience. That's a big one. Okay? That's the one part nature from earlier. Our brains have a lot of pre-programming in them. But where does this enter the political arena? In order to get your vote and your money, both parties and all kinds of interest groups, they try to make their concerns trigger your moral modules. They need you to feel something on a gut level or you're not going to get off your ass and donate some money to them. Okay? <laughs> so here's where the book really starts getting yeah, good. Yeah, We're going to sure. go through each moral module and show how the left and the right, in America at least, they hit different notes on, with these same moral modules. Okay, care. Is the owner of a car with his bumper sticker a liberal or a conservative? Okay, here's the bumper sticker. Stop the genocide. Save Darfur. It's pretty obvious. The owner of that car is a lefty. Okay? She cares more about people that have no effect on her life and that she'll never meet. Her care expands to cover the entire globe. For the right, you will see the care module activated a little differently. Closer to home, maybe. She might have a bumper sticker that says, honor our veterans. She's still being caring, but now it's restricted to veterans. Yeah, so the, the care for the left is across the board. The care on the right is a little more restricted to people close to home. So the fairness module, it arose out of reciprocal altruism. And on the left, we feel unfair when the 1% owns half the world wealth, and we hold up signs like tax the rich, feed the hungry. On the right, we feel unfair if 
you tax my hard work and you give it to people who don't work as hard as I do, okay? And you might have a sign like, spread my work ethic, not my wealth. The, the interesting thing is on the left, fairness implies equality, where on the right, they think of fairness as implying proportionality. Like Same moral module, different interpretation. Different interpretation on Left that and right. One, okay? That's why we don't get along, and people. The next one here is loyalty. Similar to our cousins, the chimpanzees, who also form tight male coalitions that battle for territory. <laughs> Sound similar? Yeah. <laughs> we evolved to keep our groups together. A great way to maintain group cohesion is to develop a strong feeling that betraying the group is bad. We are the descendants of successful tribalists, not their more individualistic cousins. The left struggles with the loyalty moral foundation because its emphasis on care for all turns it away from nationalism towards universalism. That's why the Trumpists hate the leftist globalists so much and love the slogan, America first. Republicans are the ones getting pissed when someone doesn't stand for the anthem. A little historical flavor on loyalty for you. Dante's seventh and worst layer of hell is for traitors. Yeah, so that's the thing, is that the left doesn't really stress the loyalty foundation. They don't consider loyalty as residing in the moral domain, where in the right, if you kneel during the national anthem... That's not loyal. That, that's, an Im, that's immoral. That's right. Authority, the fourth one. Height tells us a great little story about a Jordanian taxi driver talking about why he didn't want to raise his kid in, or why he wanted to raise his kid in Jordan. He said, quote, I never want to hear my son say, fuck you, dad, to me. Yeah. Authority so, to, is easy to see in tons of other species when a low-ranking member of a group has to bow down to a high-ranking member. Chimps do that all the time. They do it like every time they see the high-ranking group, right? But authority isn't always a bad thing. As our boy, chimp, researcher, extraordinaire, Franz Wall puts it, quote, without agreement on rank and a certain respect for authority, there can be no great sensitivity to social rules as anyone who has tried to teach house rules to a cat will agree. Can't teach house rules to a cat, okay? They yeah. don't come with that authority module. No, they don't. They don't in, have it. Okay? We do. Human authorities take on responsibility for maintaining order and justice. So you can't successfully raise a child by being their equal. And that Jordanian taxi driver didn't want to raise his son in a country where the, you know, there's, believe a, in the authority there's a, module li in a little less authority. Mm -hmm. uh, so you think about it. We instinctively rank we everybody. Do. And Everyone we feel does. it instantly. If a kid talks back to a teacher or a substitute teacher doesn't take control of the class and the kids walk all over her, okay? You can feel that kind of subversion of authority in, in these situations. You, and you it can feels watch gross. TV with the sound off and you can tell who's in charge, right? Yeah. You can look in a room with the, in, in the windows and tell who, who's in charge, right? If you wonder how Homo sapiens built a society that could keep us alive and where we could do meaningful work, part of your thanks is due to authority. Shouting, not my president, is only going to light up people's authority modules and push them further from your side. Flip side, if you want to change the minds on the left, maybe explain how authority leads to better care instead of repeating a moral foundational comment like, respect your elders. Yeah, so both sides are kind of missing what the other side has got going yeah. on, you know? And that's what, we're not trying to get Talking into politics here, modules. we're just trying to think of the different ways people feel about these these problems okay mm -hmm. that leads us to the last moral foundation sanctity which conservatives are 
I'm sure you can guess, make extra use of. They like that one. They love marriage. They All our fetuses come with souls, okay? Our bodies are temples. Our flags are unburnable. That's There's right. nothing you can do about any of those <laughs> questions. So what's interesting is the left is starting to use the sanctity module a little bit to discuss the environment, which here we hear at Brother Good Books left. approve yeah, like of. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Go environment. Woo-hoo. Yeah, okay. So if you hear the word disgusting, you know that we are triggering the, the moral module. And actually, the left has been using that even more with the putting children in cages. That is disgusting. And and we're finally starting to cultivate that moral feeling among the Democrats, okay? So, so those are the moral foundations. That's it right there. Conservative Republicans feel that all of these modules are equally important, and they all taste equally good to them. They care, but they care more selectively. They believe in fairness, but fairness that is more proportionality than equality. If you better believe... They want their country to be built on a foundation of loyalty, authority, and sanctity, right? Where the liberal lefties, on the other hand, put their eggs in the care and fairness baskets, okay? If people are dying of thirst crossing the border, I'm going to leave water out for them because I care about them. Or it's unfair that billionaires have so much influence on politics than the little guys. So we should all be equal in that realm. They don't, however... Believe that loyalty, authority, and sanctity should be included in the moral domain. Okay? And that's why the right and the left have so much trouble. In most situations, they're talking past each other. They're they're feeling different moral principles. You can look at these situations from this moral foundation theory and see, oh, they're considering that morality, you know, and the left doesn't consider that, and so they're just talking past each other. It's Mm. crazy. That's it. This was such a helpful uh, chapter and was the reason that I picked up the book in the first place. For sure. I heard about a book that related the morals to uh, taste buds. It's like, boom, purchase. Purchase. Moral foundations theory, way to go, Jonathan Haidt. Chapter 8. The conservative advantage. So now that Height has outlined that our moral gut feelings run the show, and he's given us a little bit about our moral taste buds to think about, he makes an interesting statement. Like we already said, our Republicans, they're speaking to all the moral foundations, and what he says, they kind of cook a tastier moral meal. And the Democrats. In that, like Democrats, they, Republicans talk about care, they talk about abortion, caring for our country, they talk about fairness, they like taking money from hardworking people, giving it to lazy people, even if you don't think that's caring, that's their kind of caring. Mm-hmm. But Republicans have a monopoly on loyalty, authority, and sanctity. So often, yeah, how often do you hear liberals call themselves patriots? Not very often. They yeah. should. Come on. Yeah. Our country's awesome. Authority. You know, when you think of authority, respect for teachers, parents, police, traditions, that's Republican sanctity. After Republicans embraced Christian conservatives during the Reagan era, they became the party of family values, saying Dems hate the traditional family. <laughs> hate not, it. Not uh. surprisingly, <laughs> that resonates right. with a lot of people. So Republicans are speaking to the full moral menu when Democrats aren't. So liberals have a two-foundation morality, care and fairness. So why do you think Republicans have bigger voter turnout in the midterm elections? They have more of their moral universe at stake. That's a huge point. That's why they're so motivated to get out to those midterms that we they always vote at much higher rates than Democrats because they have a lot more of what they consider important at stake in the political domain. And you don't just find the skew in the political domain. When a bunch of sermons were analyzed, they found that Unitarian sermons focused on care and fairness. Yeah, I think you know who uni- where Unitarian Unitarians yeah, kind of on the left. Yeah. And the Baptist sermons, they're more on the right. They focus on loyalty, authority, and sanctity. 
and they found the pattern even in brain waves. Hook someone up to an EEG and read this sentence. Quote, total equality in the workplace is unrealistic. And what? Yeah. <laughs> Liberals are going to show surprise and shock. You can see it in their brains. Their brain lights up. Unrealistic. Are you crazy? <laughs> Where conservatives are a little more of like, yeah, that sounds kind of reasonable. But if you reverse it and say that total equality in the workplace is necessary, you get the opposite re reactions where conservatives are like, what? You can see, think about this, you can see the surprise we feel when our worldview isn't confirmed. You could see it in our brains, what side of the aisle we're on. You could see it. It's crazy. crazy. Yeah. yeah. And that's what this book is all about. Scientists are starting to see why we can't all just get along. Our gut feelings come first, and we back them up with made-up reasons. Our gut feelings are dependent on our genes and our environment. Just like people have the same taste buds, but they still prefer different flavors, all people have the same moral taste buds, but prefer different moral flavors. Certain issues cause people to check their morals, and when your moral taste profiles are incompatible, you won't be able to understand the other person. So, breaking it down, part one was your moral gut feelings run the show. Part two was that we have these different moral senses and that they're different among different people. On to part three, that our moral gut feelings and intuitions help us form groups and that we're a very groupish species. You've been dancing around it. Now we're going to dive right in. So Groups. part three, morality binds and blinds. What does that mean? Chapter nine, why are we so groupish? So far in the book, we've been arguing that we are selfish, that we care more about looking good than being good, that we cut corners and cheat when we can't get away with it, and that we use our moral thinking to manage our reputations and justify ourselves to others. And we're so good at this, we actually believe our own bullshit and come out looking pretty good. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. But that's not the full picture. Most animals are like that, but we differ from most animals in a pretty significant way. Basically, chapter nine is Height's chapter showing us how group-focused or groupish we really are. Quote, I don't think we can understand morality, politics, or religion until we have a good picture of human groupishness and its origins. We frequently work with complete strangers towards common goals only to be reached in the far future. So we can be selfish, but we're also pretty effing phenomenal team players. Really are. Okay? Yeah, Gold sure. medalists. So <laughs> unless you're Alexander Supertramp, <laughs> you're a part of shout a out. bunch of groups. Yeah, <laughs> shout out Into the Wild. Yeah. We're, you got sports teams, companies, churches, schools, fandoms, We're all communities. Part of everything. Okay. Yeah, it goes on forever. That is one of the weirdest things about our species. Yes. It's just how groupish we are. None of our ape cousins even come close. They're all in teeny little like bands. Yeah, you one know, group and that's I got it. A, I got a few boys or I got my sister over here. We drive from one group it. to the next group and the next group in the same day. Yeah. So, quote from a chimp scientist, quote, it is inconceivable that you would ever see two chimpanzees carrying a log together. And we've built pyramids and highway systems, and two chimps can't even carry a log? No wonder we dominated the world. Like we talked about in Sapiens, the ability to cooperate in large numbers was the evolutionary feature that made us capable of taking over the world. We feel all the importance of our groupishness in our hearts. Why do you go to church? Why do you watch sports? Why do you have dinner with your whole family around the table? Why do you go to work every day with a bunch of strangers? Okay, the, We are much better at cooperating than all other large animals. 
but not the teeny not ones. The teeny okay? ones. Okay. Social insects do it way better. Bees, ants, termites, they cooperate pretty damn good. So Height drops a, a dynamite metaphor on us for yeah. understanding this our groupishness. And he says that humans are 90% chimp and 10% bee. And he's mm. describing this groupishness as almost hive-like, and he talks about this. And, and that this hive-like behavior or, or, of our mass cooperation is what make us kings of the earth, okay? So looking out our window right now, you can see all the Chicago the office buildings. Those are Chicago. Look at, all yeah. that, look at all those beehives out there. People yeah. are running into the office, right? Yeah. We're <laughs> buzzing into our hives in the morning, barfing out some honey, fiddling with Excel, okay? <laughs> we're, getting, we're bringing the hot pollen email, email. to the hive, okay? That's right. And then putting that pollen in our bank accounts. So if you want to understand human behavior, you have got to understand this kind of hivish mentality that we come with built in. Here, Height actually argues that this groupishness evolved as we competed with other groups for resources. And he goes into technical arguments for a controversial idea in evolutionary psychology, multi-level selection. Quote, whenever a way is found to suppress free riding so that individual units can cooperate, work as a team, and divide labor, selection favors the most cohesive superorganisms. End quote. This is such a hot topic that JD and I, we're going to get roasted no matter which side of the selection argument yeah, we're we not taking a side. Yeah, we don't know. But this height is saying something new and controversial, right? And we ain't got schooling enough to get in the weeds. But suffice it to say for now that it seems certain groups of humans outcompeted other groups. Like and it certainly seems that that could have been caused by greater group cohesion. And all we're going to say here is that Richard Dawkins author of The Selfish Gene and Future Brother Books podcast, and the king of the individual selection as yeah. opposed to the group selection, he tweeted that Righteous Mind is a, quote, V important book. And we're V agreeing with Doc and loving that he even uses the V thing. <laughs> and Doc, your book is part of season one, Brother Books, coming up shortly. Yeah. So to sum up chapter nine, we are hive-like creatures. And Height issues a unique hypothesis. We are conditional hive creatures and now we're going to talk about those conditions that bring about what he calls the hive switch so chapter 10 the hive switch <laughs> nice so here's a good opening to the idea in 1941 there's a dude and we're going to read a quote from him and he was drafted into the army i'm sure you can guess why so he spent a lot of time marching around thinking how stupid it seemed which marching, is exactly marching, marching. how i felt in high school marching yeah, band, okay? definitely was. yeah but after a few weeks his unit began to synchronize, and he experienced an altered state of consciousness while he was marching around drilling with everybody. And it's probably similar to what those bandos think when they love marching band so much. I never got there, but this guy did. Quote, words are, words are inadequate to describe the emotion aroused by the prolonged movement and unison that drilling involved. A sense of pervasive well-being is what I recall. More specifically, a strange sense of personal enlargement, a sort of swelling out, becoming bigger than life, thanks to the participation in collective ritual. This sounds a lot like Sam Harris's notion that spirituality is a kind of ego dissolution. So we're doing that book too. Boom. Sam, you're coming up. Yeah. Season um, two. This might also explain why lots of veterans think getting shot at with their buddies is the high point of their life. The high point of their <laughs> life. A little the weird, closest but they... they are to dying <laughs> is the best part of their life. Okay? They dissolve their ego into the group fighting for a common task. Um, side note, but get this. Historians think that synchronous drilling and marching that the Greeks and Romans developed is what gave them a huge military advantage. Alexander the Great turned his army into a phalanx-shaped superorganism. 
all that drilling changes I into we. So these are all examples of our conditional hiveness. Quote, human beings are conditional hive creatures. We have the ability under special conditions to transcend self-interest and lose ourselves temporarily and ecstatically in something larger than ourselves. And he calls this the hive switch. So we used to dance in unison around fires. And today we watch each other whip and nay nay with flashing lights. And oh, wait, that's exactly the same thing, basically. Same thing, okay. yeah. One scientist said that ecstatic dance is kind of like a biotechnology for binding groups together. Whoa. That's sweet. Quote The very act of congregating is an exceptionally powerful stimulant. Once the individuals are gathered around, a sort of electricity is generated from their closeness and quickly launches them to an extraordinary height of exaltation. Sounds kind of like a charismatic Christian mass or the World Cup or a riot. Our self disappears and that feels so good. Most traditional societies have some sort of ritual for transforming boys into men and girls into women. And it's more intense than a bar mitzvah. Okay. It frequently and involves pain, fear, symbolism of death and rebirth, right? And psychedelics. And it's not often very chill, okay? Yeah. But why do we do this? Because it flips our hive switch and changes the selfish child into a groupish adult. These coming-of-age rituals are a kind of biotechnology for binding groups together. Yeah, you put somebody through that experience and you convert their selfish child person into a selfless, group-centered person. That's what these things are about, okay? And JD wasn't joking. A lot of these sort of these uh, rituals use hallucinogenic drugs. And these drugs can flip the hive switch and temporarily turn the ego off. That's, that's what they do. That's why they people love raves, and that's why they've been consistently shown to have the spiritual experience. People have spiritual experiences on them. So, Homo sapiens, we're still selfish creatures similar to chimps. Our minds have been shaped by the winners of millions of years of social games. But we have a more recent update. We're conditional hive creatures, and congregating together increases our hivishness. So where do we congregate most? Church? Talk more about church next chapter. Sports arenas, work, all sorts of groups, right? Organization and corporations are hives. Remember, look out that window towards Chicago. Those are all the hives. Um, the word corporation comes from the word corpus, which is Latin for body. A corporation is like a superorganism. And I really love this part. Height now works at the NYU Business School, and he's focused on how his studies can have an impact on large human organizations like corporations and governments. Some early returns of his research are mentioned here. Quote, an organization that takes advantage of our hivish nature can activate pride, loyalty, and enthusiasm among its employees and then monitor them less closely. This approach to leadership, sometimes called transformational leadership, generates more social capital, the bonds of trust that help employees get more work done at a lower cost than employees at other firms. Hivish employees work harder, have more fun, and are less likely to quit or sue the company. That's a good thing. <laughs> yes, all good things. Yeah, my business, that sounds good. These people, these hivish employees are called team players. Go team! So how do you increase hivishness? You have to highlight people's similarities, not their differences. So here's an interesting point. Martin Luther King Jr., didn't stress the differences between white and black. He built his arguments on what we have in common as Americans and people. Thank you. Quote, we can make people care less about race by drowning our differences in a sea of similarities, shared goals, and mutual interdependencies. And by the way, that sounds a little bit like a blueprint here, which we're going to cover at some point in the future. Great book, by the way, as well. Yeah, that's but. very, very inspiring. Mm -hmm. Very inspiring. 
So a relevant side note, and the thesis of Height's first book, The Happiness Hypothesis, is that happiness comes from balancing, quote, the relationship with yourself and something larger than yourself. And so we all got that little bit of extra selflessness that comes built in. Pre-programmed. It's called the hive switch. And now we're going to talk about religion, because I think you could sense that that selflessness was kind of going there. Chapter 11. Religion is a team sport. Yeah. Interesting. What does that mean, Andrew? Well, let me tell you a story, JD. Michigan football Saturdays in Ann Arbor are magical, okay? (laughs) Tens of thousands Actually, over 110,000 make their pilgrimage to Ann Arbor for the college football Sabbath. We wear the same colors and drink from the same cups. People congregate in the big house and just like in Catholic Mass, sit, stand, and fist pump in unison. Um, By the way, if they had kneelers in the stadium, I guarantee we would kneel for field goal kicks, all right? Yeah, it's Um, too bad. Every time the Wolverines score, we sing the same songs we've sung for over a century, Hail to the Victors. Why do we do this? What is the function of all these behaviors? They make us feel part of the group. We're creating a community. And by the way, go blue. Okay? <laughs> go blue. Go blue. College football mm. is a great analogy for religion. And that's how Haidt actually opened this chapter. He's like, you can't focus on the visible aspect of a religion, like the weird beliefs people are holding. Okay, Catholicism isn't about eating a wafer. That's not what Catholicism is about. If you try to understand why religion is such a powerful force by looking at the beliefs about God and rebirth and what the wafer actually turns into, it's kind of like trying to understand the emotional power of a football game by tracking the movement of a ball. It just doesn't even make sense unless you look at the practices that bind people into moral communities. That's the key word of this chapter is moral communities. Okay? When you run a tribal survival competition for millions of years. What nature did. The tribes that win the evolutionary game are the ones that create a unified moral community where everyone intuitively understands the rules. So Height's argument here is two parts. One, excuse me, one, the most unified communities survive. Two, religion offer the best method for unifying communities. A lot of this is referencing the famous sociologist Emil Durkheim. So here's his definition of religion. Quote, A religion is a unified system of beliefs and practices relative to sacred things which unite all those who adhere to them into one single moral community called a church. So Haidt goes on for a few pages, and he challenges the views of the new atheists, like Sam Harris, Dan Dennett, especially Richard Dawkins. They think that religion started more like a parasitic meme on our brain. We're going to cover meme, but we think you know the idea. And it utilized our overactive agency detectors. Here's a sweet quote. quote, Some religions are better than others at hijacking the human mind, burrowing in deeply, and then getting themselves transmitted to the next generation of host minds. <laughs> Does that sound like someone with a positive view of religion? No. Okay, <laughs> Not exactly. That's no. a, it's like a meme undergoing Darwinian selection. And so we're going to talk about that. And uh, the selfish coming up. That may be true. But according to scientist Joe Henrik, whose book on cultural evolution we'll probably cover, quote, religions are cultural innovations that spread to the extent that they make groups more cohesive and cooperative. So religion is a good example of cultural evolution at work. Our gods started off as pretty heartless beings. Sort of like nature, sometimes they reward us, sometimes it taketh away, but they definitely didn't care about us. 
That was originally how God started. But as the agricultural revolution expanded 10,000 years ago and more recently, and our group sizes exploded... Villages, cities, empires... God started becoming more and more holistic, and they were more concerned about actions that created conflict in our big groups. Actions like murder, adultery, lying, etc., right? Quote, creating gods who can see everything and who hate cheaters and oath-breakers turns out to be a pretty good way to reduce cheating and oath-breaking in your group. It kind of makes sense, right? Especially when you toss in eternities and hellfire, okay? <laughs> Important detail on the... That'll really get people going, yeah. yeah. so the thing about religion is it's delegating the punishment to later. Like, I'm not going to punish you for this, but God sure as hell is, so you better follow His rules, capital H, capital R, okay? Capital H is, <laughs> yeah, right? You better capitalize. Yeah, get everyone to agree on a God, and that will do a pretty good job of keeping everyone in line. And make him angry so you get a little bit more social control. And another book, Sapolsky's Behave. Love Sapolsky. Love Sapolsky. Love Sapolsky. Yeah. He, in, in that book, he shares research about how big gods arose during the agricultural revolution. Big gods meaning moralizing gods. The cultural evolution of religion has been driven largely by competition among groups and and the groups that suppressed their free riders by having watchful gods won. Any group that could get their whole group to agree to certain rules and act in certain manners and feel like they're part of the team and that it's the most important thing in the, the universe, they're going to win the evolutionary game. It's little wonder that those groups ended up succeeding. And today, like we talked about in Sapiens, basically every single person that you will ever meet in your entire life comes from only a handful of religious ideas. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, for real. So hot tip if you want your tribe to survive, okay, get yourself a dope-ass story explaining that to be a real tribes member, you need to put the team on your back, and that's the most important thing you will ever do, okay? And we're not saying that people did this purposefully. Important point here. Yeah, just that when you run human evolution simulation tens of millions of times, certain ideas and practices went out, not necessarily by killing other groups either. Just that the best groups are going to continue to spread, and those practices are going to keep going, right? That's cultural evolution, and that's how we all became super religious. And they're saying that that we evolved that religious sense because that's what makes our groups so cohesive. But here's the real question. Is that true? Will a group... Will a tribe with less free riding and more cohesion actually survive more effectively, and will religion help uh, enable that circumstance? So let's look at some data, bitches. Okay, Andrew, <laughs> let's hit us with some commune survival commune rates. Commune survival rates coming right out. This is an interesting study Hyde yeah. talks about. So communes are natural experiments in cooperation without kinship. Let's look at some religious communes versus secular communes to kind of decide if what we're talking about religion is real. So we take 20 secular communes, give them just 20 years. This is a study that was done. Yeah, so these are non-religious communes after 20 years. How many are still going strong? 20 started. 20 years later, one still survives. Okay, that's one. the rates. But take 20 religious communes, give them 20 years, and eight still survive. Whoa. That's a major difference. Okay, free love runs out of juice, but those hellfires keep burning strong, right? <laughs> Great <laughs> writing. Yeah, yeah, another interesting money. side note. The researcher also found that the more sacrifice a commune demanded, the longer it lasted. But what's crazy is the sacrifice thing didn't work for secular communes. The scientist thinks it's because, quote, to invest social conventions with sanctity is to hide their arbitrariness in a cloak cloak of seeming necessity. That's where the morality binds and blinds come Mm. from. The morality that we feel helps bring our groups together, and it blinds us 
to how weird that, that the ideas and the groupishness that we, we have to keep going. So there's lots of evidence that religious people behave better in lab experiments and report higher subjective levels of well-being. Quote, by many different measures, religiously observant Americans are better neighbors and better citizens than secular Americans. They are more generous with their time and money, especially in helping the needy, and they are more active in community life. Why? What makes religious people better neighbors and citizens? Why? We've been kind of overplaying the hellfire thing because what's weird is that generosity isn't correlated with whether you believe in hell, pray daily, whether you're Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, Hindu, etc. None of that stuff tell you how generous you are in your life. What generosity does depend on how enmeshed you are in your religious community. Quote, it's the friendships and group activities carried out within a shared moral matrix that emphasizes selflessness that brings out the best in people, end quote. Group activities in your, with people in your moral matrix. That's super important. That's all generous. Here's a crazy idea. Height says that religions are like moral exoskeletons. And that's one of the best phrases I've ever heard, okay? Nice one, Height. If you live in a religious community, you are enmeshed in a set of norms that keep your intuitive elephant and your neighbor's elephants walking down the same tracks, mm -hmm. all agreeing with everybody. Quote, sacredness binds people together and then blinds them to the arbitrariness of the practice. This really is the body of Christ. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. that's, that's it. That's an important ah, detail. Yeah. Uh, basically, the hive switch allows people to be better together. Like we said earlier, there's competing views of religion out there. Dawkins, Dennett, Harris are kind of the kings of this describe, re describing religion like a parasitic meme that spreads for its own benefit. We like those guys, and we're going to do some of their books, but here we're inclined to agree with Height, Heinrich, uh, Brett Weinstein and others that say, quote, religions are sets of cultural innovations that spread since they make groups more cohesive and cooperative, end quote. Hardcore atheists know that religions blind us, but they forget or ignore that religions also bind us. That's a huge point, that morality binds and blinds. God can be thought of as a tool yes. that binds people together, a nice. kind of biotechnology. Yeah. We all evolved to feel this sacralized belonging. Height says that getting rid of that for more rational beliefs is kind of like asking us to live in space. There's no gravity. There's no grass. It's theoretically possible, but very shitty. Yeah, <laughs> In our history, yeah. there has never been never. a successful society without religion. Never, ever. So all you atheists out there spend time arguing the logicality of the book are missing the forest for the trees. The religious people aren't... The, the most important thing to these religious people isn't the book. It's the feeling of being enmeshed in a group when you get together on holy days like sunday or christmas or the festivus yes okay <laughs> and this is the quote that sums it all up that wraps together this chapter so well quote it's not about religious believing it's about religious belonging dan carlin to sum it up in this book we have challenged rationalism by saying intuitions come first and reasoning second. We have broadened the moral domain to include authority, sanctity, and loyalty, not just harm and fairness. And we've claimed that groupishness was a key sapient innovation that took us beyond our selfish tribalism and into our civilization by saying morality binds and blinds. Now that we have this information, he's finally dropping a full definition. Chapter 11. Of not just morality, but moral systems. Quote, 
Moral systems are interlocking sets of values, virtues, norms, practices, identities, institutions, technologies, and evolved psychological mechanisms that work together to suppress or regulate self-interest and make cooperative societies possible. So moral systems are interlocking lots of things that make cooperative societies possible. That's right. And so now Haidt takes all these highfalutin ideas and applies them to our current political climate today. In chapter 12, can't we all disagree more constructively? In the introduction, we talked about how it seems like we live in two different moral universes with two different history textbooks, two different climate science theories. Self-reported moderates have been losing ground and liberals and conservatives are gaining. We are literally coming apart. That sucks. It does. Super interesting side note here on the left and right terminology. In 1789, during the French Revolution, when the French Assembly got together, the delegates that wanted to change the system sat on the left, and those that wanted to preserve the system sat on the right. That's where we have our left and right terminology. That's a pretty good shorthand. Left wants to change the present order, right wants to preserve it. And our boy Jonathan argues here that our differing moral matrices, our left and right, in part is due to our DNA constructing different types of brains. So that's a crazy idea right there. But when you think about it, yeah. it makes sense because where do our personalities come from? Our genes, okay? Current research is showing that our genes account for at least 50% of our personality and then environment and all the other factors account for the rest. And so then. here's some research to back it up. If you're an identical twin and you're reared, reared in separate families, you're, you're still going to be, be similar. super similar yep. to each other, okay? Twin if, studies. If you're unrelated and you're raised in the same family, you're going to be less similar to each other. It doesn't the, the family that you're raised in isn't as important as the genes that construct your brains, okay? I don't care about your anecdotal evidence because these people looked at across tens of thousands of these examples. Identical twin studies. Well-established. Right? And identical the, twins are good because they have the same genes, so they're really good to study for gene studies, right? Yeah. So. GNA, genes and environments interact, but it starts with the genes. So here's a good quote about how our genes construct our personality. Quote, we're not just talking about mental illness and basic personality traits such as shyness. We're talking about the degree to which you like jazz, spicy foods, and abstract art. Your likelihood of getting a divorce or dying in a car crash your degree of religiosity, and your political orientation as an adult. Genetics explains between a third and a half of the variability among people on their political attitudes. Being raised in a liberal or conservative household accounts for much less. Good your quote. genes build your brain from the ground up. This is going to be discussed in our amazing book, Behave, by Robert Sapolsky, but suffice it to say for now that some combinations of genes and environments create brains that are more sensitive to signs of danger, cough, cough, conservatives, and some combinations of genes and environments create brains that like experiencing new things, cough, cough, liberals. And if you were living on the Savannah, Jay, don't you think it would have been good to have a balance of both of those? It just makes sense. On your tribal team, you want some people that are kind of out there trying, testing new boundaries, and you want other people that are kind of hanging, but hey, we, need to, we did this before, it still works, right? Yeah. This correlation of threat sensitivity with conservatives and openness to experience with liberals is well established in the literatura scientifica. Okay, so we're going to trace this out with some good stories, okay? We've got two sweet little baby fraternal twins, a boy and a girl, 
And the girl's genes, let's say, are busy constructing a brain that releases more dopamine than her brother's brain when it encounters a novel experience. Different brain chemical that. interaction. She, she's got, there's seven different dopamine receptors. And she's got the one that's like really tuned into the dopamine. So it feels good when something new happens. It's very exciting for her. Her brother might be less open to those two uh, new experiences. And... That one small little difference is going to be amplified over a lifetime of choosing different environments, okay? They grow up in the same environment, but Height says it's almost like they're separate worlds, where some teachers might praise the curious, free-thinking little girl. Others might punish her for being rebellious and prefer the studious boy instead. She chooses to go to college in New York City and finds her calling helping immigrant children. Yeah. She enjoys the novelty of the big city and learning new languages and cultures. Her social circle is made of liberals, all in a moral matrix focused on caring. They all care about those immigrants. Her brother, on the other hand, doesn't want to go to the dirty, crowded city. He stays close to his friends and family at the local university. He becomes a pillar of his church and generates lots of social capital in his community. His moral matrix is based on all the modules. He listens to a few sermons on helping the sick and needy. But the more common moral themes in his life are personal responsibility and loyalty to the groups he belongs. Very important. His community, his church, his country. Neither the brother nor the sister are wrong or right. They're just different. They grew up together, but look how different they are just because of that little change in the dopamine mm -hmm. receptors in the brain. You can't predict this based on our genes, but our genes actually predispose people towards certain environments. In those certain environments, predispose the activation of certain genes. So it's kind of like an amplification thing going on. That relationship between genes and environments are, create all sorts of different life trajectories and personalities. That openness to experience sounds nice, but there's downside for it too. Like in our ancestors, if you were exploring a cave, there could be a panther that lives there, okay? <laughs> yeah. So that's why we have a little bit of both in us, okay? Yep. But since the human mind is a story processor, not a logic processor, we're going to give you some stories of each of the American political parties, and I think you'll very quickly attach yourselves to one of these stories, okay? So it should be obvious which side of the aisle this story refers to. And for reference, Hyde got this from a book called Moral Believing Animal, which is a pretty cool title. Here is the liberal progress narrative. Once upon a time, the vast majority of humans suffered in societies and social institutions that were unjust, unhealthy, repressive, and oppressive. These traditional societies were reprehensible because of their deep-rooted inequality exploitation, and irrational traditionalism. But the noble human aspiration for autonomy, equality, and prosperity eventually succeeded in establishing modern, liberal, democratic, capitalist welfare societies. While modern social conditions hold the potential to maximize the individual freedom and pleasure of all, there is still much work to be done to dismantle the powerful vestiges of inequality, exploitation, and repression. The struggle for the good in society in which individuals are equal and free to pursue their self-defined happiness is the one mission truly worth dedicating one's life to achieving. There, you can see the emphasis on care. An authority is only mentioned as an evil, along with tradition. Loyalty and sanctity aren't even mentioned. But you can see why tradition looks bad from a certain perspective. It was tradition for the wife to stay home in the kitchen or for the slaves to work out in the fields. Okay, that was tradition too. 
It, but it's also tradition f- to raise your kids in a two-parent home, which seems to be a really good idea. So there's good and bad to this tradition and, and both sides of these things. So that was the liberal narrative. Now we're going to get to the conservative narr- narrative, which is kind of founded by Reagan, at least the, the current conservative narrative. So here's that, here's that quote. Once upon a time, America was a shining beacon. Then liberals came along and erected an enormous federal bureaucracy that handcuffed the invisible hand of the free market. They subverted our traditional American values and opposed God and faith at every step. Instead of requiring that people work for a living, they siphoned money from hardworking Americans and gave it to Cadillac-driving drug addicts and welfare queens. Instead of punishing criminals, they tried to understand the criminals. Yeah. Instead of worrying about victims of crime, they worried about the rights of criminals. Instead of adhering to traditional American values of family, fidelity, and personal responsibility, they preached promiscuity, premarital sex, and the gay lifestyle. (coughs) Scary. (laughs) And they encouraged a feminist agenda that undermined traditional family roles. They hate the family. Instead of projecting strength to those who would do evil around the world, they cut military budgets, disrespected our soldiers in uniform, burned our flag, and chose negotiations and multilateralism then americans decided to take our country back from those who sought to undermine it with the reagan talk that was a lot of heated reagan talk there there's only a hint of care for the victims of crime but there's clear references to fairness taking money from hardworking americans loyalty soldiers and flags authority family and traditions and sanctity replacing god with promiscuity and pleasure so both liberals and conservatives have deep-rooted feelings about why their side is right deep-rooted feelings constructed by gene environment interactions by the way and people aren't ready to just give up their deep-rooted feelings and their deep-rooted stories because someone else has a different story we just need to understand each other's stories a little better and that's how we can bridge the gap okay but which side actually understands the other one better which side understands the other side better to test this, Haidt had a bunch of partisans, and they filled out a moral foundations quest- questionnaire as themselves and from somebody on the other side of the aisle. So which side which, do you think conservatives understand liberals better or liberals under cons- understand conservatives better? Get us drum roll, Andrew. Conservatives, okay? It's easier for conservatives to understand liberals because they only have to account for basically one foundation, care. Conservatives love to mock liberals like MS-13 just need hugs (laughs) or we need to get those drug users some needles, which is actually a good idea in the research, but it sounds dumb, okay? But liberals, especially the very liberal, those are the people who are the worst at assessing how conservatives make decisions, how they feel about certain things, because... Or, and the interesting part is they were dead wrong about the care foundations because liberals assumed conservatives didn't care. So here's a really good quote. Quote, if you have a moral matrix built primarily on intuitions about care and fairness, and you listen to the Reagan narrative, he seems completely unconcerned about the welfare of drug addicts, poor people, and gay people. He's more interested in fighting wars and telling people how to run their sex lives. If you don't see that Reagan is pursuing positive values of loyalty, authority, and sanctity, you almost have to conclude that Republicans see no positive value in care and fairness. So the conservative thinkers Height was reading, they stressed what Height calls moral capital, and that's a really big idea here. So social capital, that refers to the social ties among individuals and the norms of reciprocity that arise from it. Hint, hint, it's a good thing, okay? We all like social capital. It's easier to get shit done. It feels good. We like it. And since conservatives feel people 
aren't inherently good, like th- that people will lie and cheat and steal if they can, which we've already argued in part one that that's true. Conservatives stress the need for external structures or constraints in order to get us all behaving well as a group and cooperating and thriving. The moral community is a little bit easier to find in the country, actually, where you don't even have to lock your door, let alone your bike. But in the city, the bastion of liberals, if you only lock your bike frame, your wheels are going to get stolen, okay? (laughs) The lack of importance the left gives to how its policies affect moral capital is, in Height's opinion, quote, the fundamental blind spot of the left, end quote. The lack of focusing of on there. all the moral foundations explains why liberal reforms so often backfire and why communist revolutions usually end up in despotism. It is the reason I believe that liberalism, height believes, it is the reason height believes that liberalism... Well, this is all quote. Um, okay, I gotta restart over here. We didn't really have to restart. I think we can throw some mistakes in there. It's okay. Um, the lack of importance the left gives to how its policies affect moral capital is, in Height's opinion, quote, the fundamental blind spot of the left. Big idea right there. The lack of focusing on all the moral foundations explain why liberal reforms so often backfire and why communist revolutions usually end up in despotism. It's the reason Height believes that liberalism, which has done so much to bring about freedom and equal opportunity, is not sufficient as a governing philosophy. It tends to overreach, change too many things too quickly, and reduce the stock of moral capital inadvertently. Conversely, while conservatives do a better job of preserving moral capital, they often fail to notice certain classes of victims, fail to limit certain powerful interests, and fail to see the need to change or up- update institutions as times change. End quote. Boom, by the way. Yeah. Great so here, quote, Here's Jonathan. a great summary. Yeah. People don't adopt their ideologies at random. People whose genes gave them a special pleasure from novelty, variety, and diversity are predisposed to become liberals. They tend to adopt certain life narratives that resonate with the grand narrative on the left, where people whose genes give them brains with the opposite settings are predisposed to resonate with grand narratives of the right. Once you join a political team, you get ensnared in its moral matrix, and you see confirmation of that grand narrative everywhere. And it's difficult, perhaps impossible to convince them that they are wrong if you argue with them from outside their moral matrix. That's the key there. You've got to enter their morality, see things from their way if you want to change someone's opinion. And Haidt says here, this is an interesting idea, that left and right are almost kind of like yin and yang. Quote, necessary elements of a healthy state of political life. That wasn't a Haidt quote, that was a John Stuart Mill quote, okay? Mm -hmm. Where Bertrand Russell said it best. Hit him, Andrew. Quote, Every community is exposed to two opposite dangers, ossification through too much discipline and reverence for tradition. On the other hand, dissolution or subjugation to foreign conquest through the growth of an individualism and personal independence that makes cooperation impossible. Impossible. We need both teams, and we're genetically programmed to prefer one team or the other. When the team stance blinds us too much, when we're too certain about our conclusions, it's time to reach out to someone on the other side of the aisle and understand their elephant. Once you understand the other elephant and that other elephant understands you, you can begin the process of compromise for mutual benefit. 
So it's time for some elephant whispering so we can all come together. Please. And like he said, we're all stuck here for a little while. So let's try to work let's it out. Let's work it out, people. That is the righteous my baby. <sighs> okay. The book asks mm. two questions. How do we come together to form moral societies? And more relevantly, how have we come so far apart? We uncovered three principles of moral psychology. The first principle is intuitions come first, strategic reasoning second. Where Haidt argues that we don't reason to find truth, but to get other people on our team. Because does natural selection care more about truth or teamwork? Our second principle is that there's more to morality than harm and fairness. Us modern Westerners, our weird people, tend to restrict the moral domain to things that harm others. But that makes us pretty weird in human history and in human cultures. Height compares our moral sense to taste buds with five different taste receptors. The third principle, morality binds and blinds. Human beings are more groupish than our Western ideas give us credit for, and morality helps facilitate this intense binding we do to each other. Thank you, Jonathan. What Thank you, book. Jonathan. Yes. What a book. We respect what you did with that book, man. That was freaking awesome. And to show you how much we respect it, JD and I spent multiple years reviewing, refining, reading, rereading, underlining, editing this manuscript. Buying that we just webcams, read. lights, webcams. Yeah, we did it all, okay? okay but because we believe that this book is really breaking yes. ground. This book opened me up. When Trump won, I was like, I have got to understand what's going on in the world. And this book explained more of it than anything else I've ever read. It's being talked about a lot on Twitter, and we hope that we have opened you up to some new ideas for how to see the world, but more importantly, how to see yourself. This book is about us as humans. And even after we read this book one time, we didn't Not even enough. understand it now Not like how enough. we do now. Yeah, yeah, we read it again and again and again. I mean, a couple of like, like just let's get some of the zinger. Emotions run your brain. Not logic. Logic evolved to serve your emotions. That right? emotionality requires rationality. We're hardwired for emotions oh. about certain things. Rationality requires emotionality. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and we're hardwired to feel certain emotions, right? Seeing everything through this lens changes your perspective. You see motivated reasoning everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, once you really take this book and grab some of the stuff that's with it, you see a different world. It's a lot different. Different worlds. That was Brother Books doing Righteous Mind, Why Good People are divided by politics and religion. Dan Carlin. Thank you